Well, hey, it's good to be with you again and to say hello to those of you who are watching from home, uh, those of you over at Central Abbey and, of course, uh, on the north shore of the river over in Mission. Uh, we are starting a new study uh, for the fall in the book of Isaiah, and really what I want to do today is simply prime the pump, uh, set up a little of the reason behind this study, where the book is going to take us, and then we'll do a quick dive into the first couple verses of Isaiah chapter 40. So that's where we're headed. But before we jump in, I want to tell you about a really important uh, citywide event that's going to be happening next week uh, between September 26th and October 3rd. All of the churches in Abbotsford are joining together to try to cover every street in our city with a week of prayer. And I really want to encourage you, our Northview family, wherever you live and whatever neighborhood you're in, to get on the website, Pray Abbotsford. Look up your street. It's really simple. There's a drop-down sign-up bar there. You can either type in your street or the street that you want to pray for. Uh, you can go to the map and you can expand out the map and you can see which streets have already been covered uh, by other people. You can choose one close to your home. And then over the course of September 26th to October 3rd, encourage you somewhere in the course of that week or several days in the course of that week to walk that street uh, or to drive that street and to pray for the people and the businesses, the children, the families that live on that street. And we are looking forward to seeing what God will do uh, through the concerted efforts of the citywide church uh, praying for Abbotsford. So I encourage you to do that. So that was just a freebie. Uh, doesn't count as part of our sermon time. Now you can start uh, your clocks, if you will. I don't think I would have to argue with you if I said that we live in a broken world. That if you go out on the streets of the city or in your neighborhood or even in your family and ask the question, what's wrong with the world? Probably no one is going to look at you cross-eyed and go, what do you mean what's wrong with the world? The world's just fine. The world's great. You know, what's your problem? I think inherently everybody knows that we live in a broken world. And the question, of course, is what is the fix for that brokenness? Can we fix our brokenness on our own? Or do we need an outside helper, an outside comforter, an outside rescuer to bring a fix to the brokenness of our world? So the book of Isaiah, a large Old Testament book written by a man named Isaiah, was written for a broken, rebellious people, much like the times that we live in. People who have run away from God, people who have either openly rebelled or just uh, unconsciously wandered off and are living in the consequences of their broken lives. People like you and me, written to tell us that there is a hope, there is healing, and that there is a way back to a better world. Now, you might wonder why this book and why now? And so I'll just give you a bit of the background. It was back in June. I was reading through the book of Isaiah in my own personal devotions. And I remember the morning sitting on our back porch and opening the book of Isaiah. You know what? There was a ton of stuff going on in the world around us. And I, there always is. These last couple years in particular seem like crazy times. I don't need to recount it all for you. You know it just as well as I do. That seems like more bad news than there is good news. The political divides in our nation, the racist unrest, economic woes, and then of course COVID-19, this pandemic that just keeps on giving and giving and giving. And more and more I was hearing, and I still continue to hear, these conversations among Christians. 
wondering how much worse can it get? Are we living in the last days? And if we're not living in the last days, I don't know how much longer I can endure this. And so with all the same nightly news stories swirling around in my mind that I'm sure swirl around in your mind, I start reading Isaiah in my morning devotions. And frankly, the first half of the book of Isaiah is not that encouraging. Because basically the book opens up by saying you're in the mess that you're in because you've wandered away from God. You've forgotten to whom you belong. Uh, chapter 1, the, the first few verses, verse 2 and 4 says this, Here the Lord has spoken, children I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, I don't know about you, but what a wonderful way, an encouraging way to start your morning devotions on a sunny June morning. Now, don't get me wrong. There is lots more in this book that is encouraging. And even in the first half, uh, there are these, uh, these drops of light. Uh, there are pinpricks of hope uh, written in. And even in that same chapter, a few verses later, in verse 18 and 19, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So you just keep reading and you keep plowing through this book. And as you turn the page from chapter 39 to chapter 40, you find that your spirit begins to lift. The tone of the book changes. The darkness of the first 39 chapters are still there, of course, as the backdrop. But the second half, you find your eyes lifted continually to the greatness of our God. His never-ending compassion and mercy toward His people and His plan to deliver. Not only to deliver Israel from captivity, but ultimately to bring salvation to all of the nations through the one He calls His servant. The second half of this book was written to exiles. And the hope that God gave them to cling on to in those dark days. That He wasn't finished with them yet. And that as dark as the days might look around them, they were compelled again and again to lift their eyes. Behold your God. Behold your God. Get your eyes off of captivity. Get your eyes off of the daily circumstances. And get your eyes onto your God, your great God. And as I sat reading, I really felt the Lord impressing on my spirit that this is what my people, this is what his church needs in the days that we are headed into. Now, maybe you know this, that the New Testament uses that same language of exile to talk about us, that we don't really belong here, that if you belong to Jesus, you belong to a different kingdom, that you are not first and foremost a Canadian citizen. You are not a German or a Kenyan or an Australian or a Korean or any number of the other 240 some odd nation states that we carry these passports of. That if you are a child of the king, you actually carry a different passport. 
that you are citizens of heaven. Uh, the book of Hebrews, that great hall of faith and all those heroes, men and women who went before us, it says this in chapter 11, verse 13, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens, strangers and exiles on the earth. Uh, Colossians, uh, talking about the same concept, that our citizenship is in heaven, and, and Paul admonishes us, so get your eyes on the things of heaven, not the things of earth. First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul uses the analogy that this house, these bodies that we live in are just like temporary tents, and that our ultimate home is a heavenly home, a, a, a heavenly body, and that while we are in these temporary tents, we groan. That even these bodies long to be clothed with their eternal body, their eternal home. So let me say it to you again, that if you're a child of God, if you claim the name of Jesus, you don't ultimately belong here. It changes the way that we approach death. Because the scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus conquered death. It holds no fear for us. It is not the end of our journey. Uh, it should change the way uh, that we look at what really matters in life and our perspective on what is really valuable and, and how we should live. Uh, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and, and that's awesome. So in other words, enjoy what God has given you. In, enjoy your stuff, if you will. But remember, this is not your home, and you're not going to be taking a U-Haul with you into eternity. So if you drive a BMW... That's awesome. If you drive a beat up old Ford pickup, that's awesome too. Because at the end of the day, both those vehicles are going to end up in the junkyard. You see, if you claim the name of Jesus, the world loses some of its grip on you. It's not that you don't care about keeping up with the times. Uh, doing what needs to be done. You've got a house and a car and kids to educate and all those things, but those things become secondary. They pale in comparison to the heavenly. The old hymn, we still sing it once in a while, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth grow strangely dim. It's not that the things of earth disappear. We still live and do life here, but they pale in comparison to the glory of turning our eyes upon our Savior. Jesus. What sets us apart then is the kind of lives we live as citizens of heaven, as children of the King. Uh, Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4. He says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So last weekend, we looked at uh, uh, an image, an illustration of the cultural river that we're looking uh, the living in right now. Ed Stetzer put it together. Uh, maybe we'll flash it up on the screen. So those of you who didn't see it last week, but if, if you didn't get that talk, go back and listen to that message. But that cultural river that we're headed into, those white waters and living on the margins, shouldn't frighten us, but rather challenge us. The opportunities that are going to be ahead of us, that as the days get darker, the light of the gospel in our lives will get brighter and brighter. So Isaiah was written for uncomfortable times, painful realities. And the hard question is this, can we, will we 
praise our God when it feels like the world is coming apart around us. Let me just grab one illustration from Isaiah itself to sort of whet your appetite with where this book goes. At the end of the book, Isaiah 58, opening up the last section, the last nine chapters with the final hope of a restored world, a world that was partially fulfilled when the exiles returned from Babylon and will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. But in that chapter, we're admonished to continue to work for the values of the kingdom of God. It, it, it says there that we should care for the poor, we should feed the hungry, we should work for a better world. Uh, same concepts that Jesus gave us, that your light will shine in a dark place. And specifically, it uses language like this, that you'll be rebuilders of the ancient ruins, that you will be restorers of the streets and of the cities that you live in. But in the middle of that chunk is this rather strange thought, Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now, I don't know if you caught it in the middle of that, but it's like a really strange phrase. What, what is this, he will satisfy you in scorched places all about? If I were editing it, I think I would just put a pause there he will continually satisfy your desire and then pause and jump to the end and you'll be like a well-watered garden. You see, I know some other water passages that I like a whole lot more than this one. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Or Psalm chapter 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then it says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. That's a water passage I like. So which is it, a scorched place or an abundant, well-watered oasis? Well, the answer, of course, is both. The answer is yes. Uh, Jeremiah 17 brings the two thoughts together. When it says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, what that phrase at the end of Isaiah 58 tells us is that your life of flourishing in Jesus, of producing abundant fruit for the kingdom of God, can actually happen in times of drought and scorching heat the scorched places of our lives. Now, the folks to whom those words were first written were not enjoying life like we enjoy. They weren't living in their suburban middle-class life in a democratic society with food in the deep freeze and a little bit of money in the bank. They were neck deep in trouble, trouble of their own making, to be honest, but trouble from which they needed rescue. And in the midst of that scorched place, the Lord says to them, drill a well, 
drill a well because there is living water even here in the middle of this desert. So I'm not entirely sure where the Lord is going to take us over these next couple months. But what I do know as we look around us, it looks like that we're living in or we're headed into some scorched places. Uh, let me just say a few words about the book, just a larger setup if you're not familiar with this book. The Old Testament has 39 books of different lengths and genres. There are books of the law, books of history, books of poetry, and there are books of prophecy. Five of those books are called major prophets, uh, not because they're more important than those that are called minor prophets, but simply because they're bigger, they're longer, uh, they're massive size books. Isaiah is one of them. And of all those major prophets, Isaiah might be what we would consider to be Mount Everest. Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet because he has so much to say about Jesus, or he's been called the fifth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. He has so much to say about this coming servant king. Isaiah was the Apostle Paul's favorite. He quoted him more than any other Old Testament book. In fact, Isaiah is quoted 88 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament book except the Psalms. Isaiah, the man who wrote the book, preached for 40 to 60 years, somewhere in that time frame, uh, over the lifetimes of four different kings, just before Israel went into captivity under Babylon. And the tradition of the church tells us that the fifth king, Manasseh, an evil king, hates him, and he hated his message, and he took Isaiah, threw him in a dungeon, and ultimately put him to death by having him sawn in two. Now, some of you have studied the book before. And you will know that there are so many great promises given to God's people. But even if you've never done a deep dive into this book, as we are going through it, you are going to find yourself saying again and again, man, I recognize that promise. I've heard that passage before. It sounds familiar to me. It sounds comforting to me. I hear an echo here. Where have I heard this before? And it's more than likely it's because you've heard messages based on these passages here in Isaiah and that as you've read the New Testament, you have come across some of those 88 quotes that we will come across in the book of Isaiah. There are so many hymns and worship songs that have been used, uh, written using Isaiah as their text. And if you have ever listened to uh, all of it or part of Handel's Messiah, you will hear the scriptures of Isaiah again and again and again and again, as Messiah does, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you will hear Isaiah again and again. Some interesting trivia for those of you who like Bible trivia. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible is divided into Old Testament, New Testament. 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The first half of Isaiah, 39 chapters, point forward to the Messiah that will come. The New Testament, 27 books, reveal and expound on the life of Christ and the hope of eternity that we live for. And the second half of Isaiah, 27 chapters, point to the great plan of God in salvation in the Messiah and the ultimate hope of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 40 opens with a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord. The New Testament opens with John the Baptist 
quoting the very same text, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah closes with a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. And of course, the New Testament, Revelation 20 and 21, finishes off with a glimpse into the new heavens and the new earth. So we're going to spend a couple months digging into Isaiah 40 to 55. And specifically with this question in mind, what does Isaiah have to say about this great God that keeps, he keeps pointing us to? Chapter 40, exiles living in a scorched season, and they are admonished, behold your God, behold your God. And I think that there is something here for us, that our times are different for sure, and yet are they? Are they really that different? Carl Truman says this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says, every age has had its darkness and dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and to respond appropriately to them. We might think our days are darker, our days are different, but in fact, they are not that much different from the times of these exiles. So just briefly, I want to fly over those first few verses of chapter 40 and then drill into really just the first two. But if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. Isaiah 40 reads this way, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become, a level, shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Comfort. Comfort my people. I really want to look just at those first two verses. The English word and the Hebrew word comfort mean precisely the same thing. It means to give rest or console. It is often in the context of mourning or grief. And it carries with it the idea of changing of the mind or repenting, literally, which means to change the mind. So to come alongside someone in a time of grief and to turn their mind, to change their mind, to comfort them, to console them. It's often used specifically in times of grief. Genesis 24, Isaac is mourning uh, 
the death of his mother, Sarah, and he is comforted by his wife, Rebecca. Genesis 37, Jacob is refusing to be comforted at the death of his son, Joseph. And so we understand well what that word means. But what I need to tell you of most importance is this, <clears throat> that is critical to the ministry of the body is to us in times of trial and grief and sorrow. To have family and friends come around us and to walk with us and to comfort us in these challenging days. It is the ministry of our triune God that is even more important and more powerful. Our God, our triune God is indeed our comforter. And Isaiah says this in God's words, comfort, comfort my people. If you look forward to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. In other words, God the Father is our comforter. He cares for us as his children. But Jesus as well is our comforter. Isaiah 62, a prophecy about Jesus, says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, if you know your New Testament, you'll know that in Luke 4, as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, he goes into a synagogue, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61, and he says, this scripture is now fulfilled in your presence. I am the one this text was speaking of. I am here to comfort you. And of course, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. John 16, Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, that word helper is translated in, in some translations with the word comforter or advocate, helper. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are our comfort. And I don't know what's going on in your life today. But I know that every time we meet like this, whether you're sitting at home or in one of our campuses and gathered with people, I know that every time we come to another weekend service that there are a bunch of people in our congregation who are neck deep in a time of trial or crisis. There are always people who are in a deep need for the comfort of God. To hear the promise that God is good all the time. That all the things that God allows to come into your life have been filtered through his fingers first as the sovereign over our lives. That in all things, God works together for our good. And that even when the world sends something towards us and they intend it for our harm, that God can take it and turn it and use it for his glory and for our good. For everyone else who's listening this week and you're saying, well, I'm not in a trial right now. Thanks. That's great. The truth is you're either coming out of a trial or you're just about to enter one. You see, the common denominator in our lives is this, that in this world you'll have trouble. Jesus was the one who said that. It's not my words, Jesus, John 16. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome. And so we need the comfort of Isaiah 40. Comfort 
my people. But consider those words, comfort my people. What people was he talking about? Because in that moment in time, this passage was written to those rebellious captives in Babylon. They were suffering the consequences of their own rebellion. And there in their rebellious state, God says through Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort my rebellious people. That even in the midst of being punished by God, suffering the consequences for their rebellion, they're offered the comfort, the grace, and mercy of our God. In other words, you've never gone so far that you can outrun the mercy of God. You are my people. You might be a rebel. You might be suffering punishment or the consequences of your choices. You might even right now be running away from God, and yet he offers you comfort. That he wants to come alongside. He wants you to come home. He is waiting for you. And you've known his goodness. You may have still walked away, but he is ready and he is waiting for you to return. You see, some of you are here today and you're in need to be reminded of this or maybe told for the very first time that if God sets his sights on you, that he is going to chase you down like the hound of heaven. He will pursue you and that you have never run so far away from God that he is not right there on your heels waiting for you to turn. And in that moment, he is there to offer comfort and grace and mercy. You see, in this context, Isaiah, these people are neck deep in trouble. They're, they are suffering the consequences of their rebellion. They knew better, but they had told the Lord to back off. They had forgotten their maker. They wanted to live life on their own terms. They intentionally walked away from the Lord. And now instead of saying, well, let's just let them suffer in their mess for a little while longer. Let them get a taste of their own medicine. The Lord says to Isaiah, preach to these people. Preach to these rebellious kids of mine that I stand ready to comfort them and to welcome them. In fact, the very next verse, verse 2, says, speak tenderly to them. Tenderly. The phraseology there is a position in power, speaking to someone who's in a lesser position, and speaking to them with compassion and with kindness. So rather than being an oppressor or becoming a dictator, reaching down to help that person up, uh, it was used in Ruth, this very same phrase in Ruth chapter 2, where a woman named Ruth says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. And she's speaking to a man named Boaz. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. If you don't know this story, Boaz is a wealthy landowner and Ruth is a young widow. She is destitute. And the only hope that she has is to go to the fields of this wealthy man and to glean the leftovers of the crops in that field. And Boaz shows favor to her. Boaz, in a position of power, comes alongside a, a young widow in a position of destitute state, and he lifts her up. Tell them, it says here in chapter 40, verse 2, tell them your hard labor is over. Your, your military service is done. Um, commentators tell us that could be looked at two ways. It could be that you have been an enlisted soldier. You've been out on your tour of duty and finally you have finished that assignment and now it's done, it's over. Or the flip side, which is more likely, 
Your warfare has ended. You were captives as prisoners of war. You were casualties of the battle. You were simply innocent citizens in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you need to know the battle is over. But either way, you need to know this. Your, your warfare has ended and your iniquity has been pardoned. Your sin has been paid for. You received back double from the Lord's hand. Double for all your sins, it says. You see, embedded and implied here in this text is the idea of a substitute. That someone has paid this debt for you. You have been pardoned. You didn't pardon yourself. You have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. You have been given this. It, it, it is this core concept of Christianity, and it's an echo back to the book of Leviticus where we are introduced to this concept of substitution. It's what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions, that God will allow someone else to pay the price for a debt that you owe to pay yourself. Substitutionary atonement are the big theological words that God will allow a substitute to stand in our place so that we can be made one with God. We can be atoned. We can be right. And in the Old Testament, it was a spotless lamb or a goat that would cover over sin for a time. In the New Testament, it was a spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who lays down his life once and for all. That he lived a perfect life that we were not able to live. That he died the death that we deserved to die. And then he rose from the grave and he offers us the free gift of life, salvation, full, free. You have received pardon for your iniquity. You have received from the Lord's hand. That phrase double for your sin is an interesting phrase because you might look at that there at the end of verse two and saying, so what? The Lord paid us back twice for our evils. He gave us back double of what we deserve. He, he poured on the consequences. He really let us suffer. But the idea there of doubled is not so much in the amount that he gave us double what we deserve, but rather it's the idea of doubling something up. In fact, that word is used to, uh, in, in, the, in the Hebrew language, to fold something over. Or when the temple was being built and, and the uh, curtains crossed over one another, they, they doubled one another. There was a double layer. One commentator said it could well have referred to a financial practice in the ancient days. That if you fell into debt and you took out a loan from a creditor, so say you take a mortgage on the house or the farm, that two pieces of paper would have been written out uh, assigning that debt. One was held by the person who held your mortgage and the other was literally nailed to the doorpost of the house. And it was to let people know that that property was temporarily under the ownership of another. We have the same concept in, our, in our, modern, our modern times. We call it a lien. Is there a lien on this property? Does, does, is there money that is owed against this property? If you're buying a new house, a new piece of property, uh, one of the searches that uh, your lawyers, your realtor will do is to look and make sure that no one else uh, has a lien on this property. No one else is owed money by this person. But when that debt was finally paid, the creditor would come back and would fold up that paper, would double it over and nail it back up to the wall, paid in full. So I was reading that, I thought of Colossians 1, where it says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, and He's brought us in as children in the kingdom of light. 
And a chapter later, it tells us, it unpacks for us how he did that. It says there in chapter 2, verse 13, And you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, the lean on your life, that guilty verdict that was written out, you are guilty. This is the judgment of the courts. He takes it aside, this text says, and he nails it to the cross. He doubles it over and he nails it, finished, paid in full. We sing a song with those lyrics. It's a, it's a great song, nailed to the cross. When I stand accused by my regrets and the devil roars his empty threats, I'll preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned for Jesus Christ is my defense. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. The weight of guilt I bear no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a great song. It's based on this text in Colossians. So God tells Isaiah, comfort my people. Cry out over them. Cry out for these three things. Cry out in verse three to five to get ready to meet the Lord to make straight paths for your feet, to clear off the path for the coming of the Lord. There is glory on the horizon. And with 2020 New Testament vision, uh, looking back, we hear the voice of John the Baptist going ahead of Jesus Christ, prepare the way for the Lord, get ready, clear down the mountains, make straight paths for your feet. In other words, clear your calendar, get uh, the social agenda ready. How are we going to make space to meet with our Lord? It's a very important question. Cry out over them the next verses in verses six to eight that your life is just a vapor, but God's word is eternal. Remind them of what no mortal man wants to be reminded of, that you have no lasting beauty, that your life is just a breath of wind. It is a vapor. It's like the mist of the morning or the illustration here, like the wildflowers and the grass of the fields. It's fresh in the morning, but when it is cut, it is wilted by evening. But the word of our God is eternal. In other words, it doesn't matter how beautiful you are, you are going to age. It doesn't matter how strong you are, those muscles will fail you. You are here for just a temporary moment in time. And it's intended to point out the obvious that we try so hard to deny our utter helplessness and the insignificance of our lives before a holy God. You know, I think in this particular context, we could learn and take a page from the 12-step recovery programs. If you're not familiar with those programs, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, uh, or, or many others of the 12-step programs, the first step in those 12 steps is this, that I admit I am powerless. Whatever it is that holds power over me, whether it is alcohol or gambling or some other kind of addiction, I admit that I am powerless. That is the point of these verses. And then finally cry out over them. Verses 9 to 11, get up on a high hill and shout it out. Behold your God. In the scorched land that you're living in, lift your eyes above the horizon, above the nightly news. Get your eyes on the Lord. Behold your God. He is on the way. He is mighty to save, and he is gentle like a shepherd. Two sides of the same coin. He is coming to judge and coming to conquer, and he is also coming to comfort and to save. 
And so that's where we're headed this fall. Get your eyes up. We live in the trenches of daily life. We've got mortgages to pay and cars to repair. We've got kids to get educated and crabgrass to somehow weed out of the yard. Cancer and other health challenges face us. Marriages go through times of challenge and kids sometimes give us grief. Maybe your job, your employment situation is less than what you would like it to be. Maybe you're thinking this feels like a scorched place. And in the midst of all of this, Isaiah gives us this admonition, behold your God, that God is our comfort in times of trouble. Melissa Kruger writes for the Gospel Coalition and in one article she says this, sleepless nights, difficult conversations, and unexpected waves of grief have left me weary and worn. I felt like I have nothing to offer. Perhaps he leads us through the scorched places just so we have nothing else to rely on but himself. When the landscape is barren, we must cry to him for bread and mercy of mercies. He does not leave us hungry. Comfort, comfort my people. And the greatest promise in the scriptures, it is the promise of Isaiah, but it is the promise of the entire book. That it is not just that God will get you through today, but that he has purchased your life for eternity. That our greatest comfort is that as children of God, we are actually not our own. We belong to another. We belong to a heavenly father and we belong to a different land. Heaven, the new heavens, the new earth is our home. And the greatest comfort of all is that God saves sinners. He enters our brokenness. He comes after our rebellion and he makes a way for us to be right with himself. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first question was this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? I want to end with the answer to that question. That I am not my own. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What's your one comfort in life and death? That you're not your own. You belong to another. Comfort. Comfort my people. So that's where we're headed this fall. The second half of Isaiah was written to exiles. That's you. That's me. That's us. Exiles that need to be reminded of home. That this life is short and our God is strong. Let me pray for you. Father, as we start this new study over the several weeks leading up to Christmas, I pray that you would take concepts from this chunk of Isaiah and that you would make them live to us. 
You know the specific needs of the men and women, the boys and girls who will be listening to these messages each weekend. You know the specific circumstances they find themselves in. And you know that for some, they, they do really feel like they are in a scorched place right now. That they are in a desert place. There doesn't seem to be much flourishing. There's no water on the horizon. And then in the middle of those scorched desert occasions, you have said to you, I will come to you. And you will be like a well-watered tree that you can actually flourish in a time of suffering. And so, Lord God, I, I pray for the men and women listening, even this weekend, for the circumstances they find themselves in, that you would lift us above the clatter of the nightly news, lift us above the circumstances of our life, lift us above even our own rebellion and our running away from you. Turn our eyes towards you, behold your God, and may we find comfort. Our greatest comfort, that we're not our own, Father. We belong to you. And so actually it's on you to make this thing work. We commit our lives to you for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.